For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. That was a long week between episodes, wasn't it? I remember saying, tune in next week. We're going to have this amazing episode about regenerative agriculture. I don't know, three weeks later. Well, I always find it very hard to keep up with the schedule for the podcast when I'm traveling. But of course, I'm still here. I've been in London at the Future Fabrics Expo, and then I was in Copenhagen at the Global Fashion Summit, where actually I chaired this panel about regenerative agriculture, which was just a bit of synchronicity. I love it when the universe pushes you all in one direction. I feel like everything's about this at the moment for me. So let's begin with my promised episode on regenerative agriculture. And do let me know what you make of these episodes, these three or four episodes about materials and farming. You can find me as usual on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And please do keep sharing the podcast if you can. As you know, Wardrobe Crisis is independent, so we really rely on you to help us reach new listeners. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Okay. During World War II in Britain, where my guest Sarah Langford is from, there were grave fears in the 1940s that the country couldn't feed itself. Think about it. You've got fighting, disrupting borders and imports. You've got conscription, so all the young men being moved off the land into the armed forces. You've got rising costs and, of course, rationing. So in terms of just day-to-day grind, there was a national obsession with the lack of food. You can read all this stuff. And there's so many contemporary accounts of like how exciting it was to get an egg <laughs> and like the sort of scant butter portions that you'd get as a family and... Essentially, if you had any little patch of soil, you would try to grow extra veggies there. But rationing didn't stop till like nearly the 50s. I forgot the exact year. But essentially, this was a period of deprivation and lack. And after the war ended, no wonder governments and citizens were focused on ensuring they never saw the like again. Now, at the same time, big chemical companies, including those who'd been making DDT, which was used during the war started to move into pesticides for agriculture. And the new organophosphates were also taking off. You've got this whole revolution happening in farming. Think mechanised. And then subsidies and incentives for monocrops, making fields really, really big so they're easy to plough, taking out all the old hedgerows, chucking in all these chemical inputs. And you know what? Yields did rise enormously. So farmers in the sort of 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, they were the heroes. They were producing so much abundance. There was this wonderful feeling that we'd never go hungry again. In fact, we had enough food and fibre to sell it dirt cheap and even to waste it. Oops, right? I mean, that is unsustainable. So today, fast forward, farmers are experiencing a backlash. Once celebrated for filling our plates, now they find themselves vilified for destroying our soils and failing to protect our environment. That these are many of the very same people who remember being loved and respected and were only doing what the government and the consumer said they wanted is not often discussed. And it's it's one of the themes that comes out in Sarah's book that I thought was so interesting and I felt such empathy for farmers reading it. So Sarah Langford is the author of Rooted, How Regenerative Farming Can Change the World. She's also a farmer herself, although she didn't start out that way. You'll hear about why she moved to the land, back to the land in 2017, I think, and how they farm organically with sustainability in mind. It's all about respecting and operating in harmony with the natural world. But it's not that easy for everyone to just do this now. So there's so much in this. I think you're going to find it absolutely absorbing. And Sarah is a very interesting speaker and just lovely. Ready? Want to hang out with her? Let's chat with Sarah Langford. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Absolutely. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah Langford. I'm very excited that you're giving us your time to talk about your sensationally good new book. I was saying to you before that I I didn't know it about it. And I was very attracted by the cover in a bookstore, bought it because it had a good title and looked so beautiful. And I could not put it down for four days straight. I read it across a whole weekend. <laughs> I think that's kind of the 
biggest compliment anyone could give a writer, I reckon. Well, actually, a page turner is normally some sort of thriller or novel, but this is a very serious book. The title is Rooted How Regenerative Farming Can Change the World. But it is a really good story. Well, I think that's how you reach people. I think you can change the world through stories, the right stories. You can change law. It's kind of what I used to do for a job. So before I was a writer, I was a criminal barrister. So that's what I did in court. Every day I stood up in front of a jury and tried to take them into the world of my client through telling their story. When I had my two kids, I went on maternity leave and that's when I wrote my first book, trying to tell the human story of the law, which was similar in its intent. It was to try and take people into a world which they didn't know through the stories of the people who inhabited it. And while I was writing that, my husband in 2017 lost his job and we were living in London thinking, why are we here? And so we moved to Suffolk where he grew up, which is in the east of England and big arable kind of farming country and rented a cottage which was two fields away from where he grew up. And those fields were owned by his parents as were 180 acres of arable fields nearby. And with enthusiasm, which comes from naivety, I guess, we said, well, we'll take it on. We'll manage the farm. And then tripped and fell down this kind of rabbit hole. And so my literary agent very much wanted me to write a very lucrative, best-selling series of crime fiction novels. (laughs) But I had understood, I suppose, in those years that I was finishing in your defence and falling down this world of farming, that farming is about so much more than farming. It is about how food is produced, but it's also about how our fibre is produced, whether that's wool or cotton or flax or whatever it might be. And it impacts our lives every single day, whether it's clean air, clean water, the environment around us into which we are linked and dependent. So it kind of has so much of our life interwoven in it, but in a way that we do not notice and therefore do not value. Sarah, I warned you about this, but I <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you would read out this paragraph because it's so perfectly put. It's from chapter three, page 60 in my edition. I would love to do that. Here we go. Oh, good. Go on. <laughs> this is like a trick that I'm pulling. It's like, do a reading for us. Thank you. <laughs> Cities generally help us to distance ourselves from all sorts of truths and responsibilities. Drop a can or a cigarette butt or a crisp packet in the city and someone else will soon come along and sweep it up for you. Here in the countryside, it will stay until it is buried by leaves. Leave a gate open in the city and no one will be able to tell whether it was you and what does it matter anyway? Here it can mean cows running up the high street or sheep grazing on someone's front garden. Pass a stranger in the city and you can look straight through them, for they are the hundredth stranger you've seen that day and you will probably never see them again. I begin to wonder whether our solipsistic cities have promised us that we need not really be responsible for anything but our own wants and desires. Oof. Is that right? (laughs) I've got to ask you. It was perfect. I've got to ask you, has your time moving back to the country turned that around? Do you feel more responsible and more connected? The awakening is the beginning. It's that brilliant line from Mary Oliver, attention is the beginning of devotion. Once you start to see it, you will pay attention, you'll care about it. And so the idea of having a connection with the person who you buy your food from is the most brilliant way to start, whether that's working on a farm for a bit whether that's just going to a farmer's market and talking to the person that you're buying from, the connection part is is key. And so, yes, it has, this experience has changed how I see. It's changed how I hear. It's changed how I look at the connections that we all have and make, whether we know about them or not. And it's sort of impossible to go back after you've seen it. All right, we're going to talk about some of the really human stories that you tell in the book and also stories about nature. But before we do that, I do just want to point out to listeners that this book is focused on the UK. Farming is specific 
to different countries, but I think there are also some lessons that we can learn universally. I'll also point out that this is mostly about food, although of course there is this connection to fiber, of course. But I think in terms of those universal lessons, for me, it was about how farming's changed. Also the stuff around coming back to story, how we've changed the way we view farming in our collective psyche. Yeah. When did farming change to be as it is today? Because I feel like if you talk to someone who's never considered or learnt about or maybe visited a farm Mm. about what they think farming is, they might imagine a few different animals are all friends (laughs) in a lovely, pretty green field. Mm. And maybe the farmer grows some vegetables, maybe he specializes in. He, I think he is a he in my bucolic stupid cliche. With ruddy cheeks and yes. Yeah, exactly that. And maybe there's a specialism where, I don't know, they grow wheat. But that's not what modern farming looks like. We know it's mechanised, highly mechanised and uses a lot of chemical inputs. When did it start to change and how? Why? It was, I think, probably really in the 1950s and 60s. A combination of government incentives, government money and really cheap fuel, cheap synthetic nitrogen, cheap chemicals, which would do a job. You you could go out and nuke a load of weeds within half an hour, which would have taken you a back-breaking three days to weed out. So it was a combination of those three, chemistry, money, and policy that changed Mm -hmm. it. And I think sort of 50s, 60s when it started, and then it really accelerated in the 70s. And I think what's so important to remember about this and why we must be careful when we talk about food to kind of factor this in. The overproduction of food began much sooner than people think of. So when we had wine lakes, butter mountains, grain mountains, when the cost to the European Union anyway of physically storing the amount of food that was being overproduced became exponential. That was in the 1980s. It wasn't really that long after. And we mm, I remember it. Yeah. I remember it in the news as a kid, the, the lakes of milk, yeah. the wine Mad. lakes. Such a good visual, isn't it? And that's when you had this policy called set aside where you would pay farmers not to farm. And even now we globally overproduce enough food to feed three billion more people than currently exist. And I think most scientists now think that global populations will probably plateau at 10 billion. So we already produce food enough to feed that many people. And our food waste is appallingly high. I mean, if food waste was another country, it would be the third worst polluter. And I think it's probably the same in the fashion industry as well. The idea of waste having no value is not being priced into the economic model is what is leading to this excess. So this idea that we hear about, and I think it's probably the same in a fashion, that we need to keep producing stuff because we're going to have so many more people completely ignores the fact that we already have enough to clothe and feed as many people that will exist in the world. What happened after the First World War with hunger, hunger and scarcity? Most of our farming policies that we have now are a legacy of that. So paying farmers to produce as much as possible, yield being the thing that farmers look at rather than profit, producing as much as is possible rather than looking at the quality of what is produced all of that as a legacy from the Second World War. And it's quite a hard one to shift, especially when the government financial incentives have been set up for it. So what I think has happened in the last couple of years is that the financial incentives just aren't there anymore in the same way. Not just because subsidies are going, although that is right, but because we have all been living off a kind of orgy of cheap fuel for a long time. And now that is coming to an end. It's being priced in. So because we are actually seeing the true cost, and I'm not talking about the natural cost, although that is a significant and expensive cost, we're seeing the cost of fossil fuels really come through. So fertiliser now is four times more expensive than it was two years ago. 
and energy is more expensive, much, much more expensive. And we, what we haven't yet started to do, although I really hope this is where we go, is to start pricing in the cost of our natural systems. So if a farmer loses a huge amount of topsoil into the river, carrying loads of nutrients with it, and that river is therefore polluted, that carries a cost, a cleanup cost with it. Through your book, many of the farmers that you talk to seem like they've got no control over or when they were farming conventionally, had no control over what they did. Lots of bureaucracy, lots of forms to fill out, Mm -hmm. not a lot of agency over what they might like to do. The system seems quite screwed. (laughs) The system, I mean, you've nailed it. The system emasculates farming, infantilizes farming, removes farmers' autonomy. And I mean, I had a farmer say to me, well, actually you know, thousand acre farm, I'm just the tractor driver. My agronomist tells me what to plant and when. My grain merchant picks it up and tells me what I'm going to get for it. I just do what they say and farm it. And I think one of the most powerful things about this revolution in regenerative farming, which allows farmers still to use chemicals with a minimum philosophy. So you use the minimum amount of nitrogen because you're getting your system to a point where it doesn't need it. You do use the minimum amount of herbicides because, for example, you don't want to plough. You're going to drill your crops directly into the soil. That not only means that they are released from the salesman, their entire system is not set up to profit the guy who's flogging chemicals at their gate, but it also means that they can re-establish their autonomy on the farm. They decide Mm. what they want to grow. It is tricky creating a market for it, but so many of these farmers have gone into direct selling. So they have set up a meat box. They've set up a vending machine for their milk. They've set up a vegetable scheme. They've opened up their land. This is one of the most interesting things about it, to other people coming on to farm a bit of their land, whether that's community-supported agriculture under a polytunnel or whatever it might be. So They are wrestling back both the creativity, the fun, the intellectual stimulation, but also the control over their market that has been taken from them by this global food system. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a beautiful and practical and possible answer. I know it's not easy and I know that obviously money talks. It's bloody hard work. Yeah, Yeah, it it is really hard work. But I think one of the things that is going to be a game changer in the UK. And I hope that if we pull this off, it might become a blueprint for the rest of the world and how they do it. Is that alongside our public money, which is going to pay for some of the ecological methods, before it would be bits around the edges. But now, for example, you will be paid to cover crop. You will be paid to have a soil management plan. You will be paid to do, I hope, agroforestry, which is planting trees with crops in between. What is also, I hope, going to be layered on top of that is private finance. Because farming is the only industry that's not just able to reduce its emissions, but absorb them and other people's emissions too. So if you are keeping your land covered for as much of the year as possible, you will be sequestering carbon through the release of those sugars into the ground and through locking it up in trees and hedgerows. And that means that a company that cannot absorb its own emissions, which is most places, can pay farmers to do that for them. Okay. Before we get into the stories, I'm going to ask you to have a quick stab at a definition of what we mean by regenerative farming. The principle of regenerative farming, I suppose, is based on the idea that our land is now so degraded that to farm sustainably means maintaining something that's degraded. Regenerating farmland or regenerative farming at its simplest means putting back more than you take out. And that means regenerating the soil, regenerating the creatures that live above and below the soil, regenerating the landscapes, but also regenerating the community regenerating the people that interact with your land, creating a a living, breathing system which 
enhances rather than degrades. Mm. So it hasn't yet got a definition. Some people think it should because then they can regulate it and market it. Some people think it shouldn't because it should be adaptive depending on what the farm needs at that particular time, year and location. But there are kind of main principles which all really are based on this idea that a plant, and I say this as someone who hated science at school, but now find it absolutely fascinating, a plant is basically a solar panel. And every time that plant uses its leaf as a solar panel, it creates sugars, some of which are leaked into the soil and boost this extraordinary world of biology that lives in the soil with billions of creatures. And that sugar is basically carbon. So if you take that as your kind of principle, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to have as many living roots in the ground all year round. You're trying to grow as many solar panels as possible to lock up carbon, boost the biology in the soil, circulate nutrients, unlock stuff that's already there rather than adding it out of a bag or a bottle. What a perfect description. You've done this before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is, you know, it doesn't, it gets complicated and I don't think it needs to be. And like any sector, there is a whole load of language around it that is exclusive that you have to sort of know to understand what people are talking about. And Oh my gosh, yes, yes. Every sector has it. Law has it too. But it keeps people out. And this is something that everybody can be involved in, in some way, even if it's just the decision they make about where they buy their food and clothes, Mm. how they do that. So it, it shouldn't be exclusive or exclusionary. What I wanted to write about in Rooted was not just the sort of history of how farming got to where it is now and why and where it's going, But I guess through my own learning, take the reader with me as my eyes were opened, not just to that, but to the natural world, Mm -hmm. which as someone who grew Mm -hmm. up in a, I grew up the granddaughter of farmers and my dad was a land agent and I had country roots, but I had been living in the city for 20 years. And the nature writing I read the descriptions of plants, all of it seemed like a world that I would never be able to understand. Bird song, you know, the idea of identifying birds by their song was as foreign to me as being able to sit down and play a concerto on the piano or whatever, you know. But I absolutely can do it now. Not the piano, <laughs> but the bird song. And that's <laughs> because once you find a way into it, you realise this is accessible to everyone. Everyone can do this. Everyone can have that extraordinary and, I think, spiritual connection with the natural world. Oh, so do I. Okay, before we talk more about nature and your own experience of moving back to the land, you said that, at its essence, this idea of regeneration seeks to fix the depletion, I guess. How, then, does that differ from what most farmers are doing at the moment? Do you want to just paint us a picture of what's actually happening that isn't like that in most farms right now? We call it conventional farming, but it's been conventional for about 70 years, uh, as opposed to the many thousands that we have farmed for. Mm. And I think it's important to understand that conventional farming came about because of three things. One was the Second World War, which meant that A global food network was fractured and so countries had to feed themselves. It came about because of chemicals which had actually been developed for war being repurposed after the war as weed killers, herbicides which kill weeds, fungicides which kill diseases on plants and insecticides which kill pests and insects. And the genuinely groundbreaking revolutions in plant breeding and fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer. So the combination of all of those. Uh, Hang on a minute, because that's how it came about. But I want Mm. to know what we see right now, like not the history of how we got there, but what what are we doing? You're saying we'd like to see soil regenerated, creatures thriving, (laughs) the plants acting like little solar panels. But what actually does it look like out on the land right now? Like what is the problem? 
The problem is that we have used up all our natural resources. And when people talk about food security or, or the environment, they talk about it like they're two separate things. There is no food security without the environment. We are entirely dependent. We are almost wholly dependent, although not solely, on soil. And if we degrade our soil, so it's basically hydroponics, we're just using it as a growing medium that we add stuff to, and it's blowing away, leaking into our rivers, taking nutrients with it, we will not be able to grow food anymore. There's a history of it. It happened in the 1930s in the Dust Bowls in the Great Plains of America, where these very fertile plains were just slash and burn farmed. And then they blew away, which was one of the factors behind the Great Depression in the 1930s. Mm. So this has happened before. It's happened in different cultures before in the Mayans. We should be able to be smarter than this and look at how history has taught us that if you degrade the natural assets that make the things that you are dependent on, you bring about your own end. So the idea of restoring soil is at the heart of all of this. You wrote that line in the book about soil essentially in inverted commas conventional farming can be like hydroponic growing, i.e. there's no nutrients in it. You've got to, it's just dead and you've got to put a load of stuff in to make it able to grow anything. I found that very chilling. I saw it. It's not hyperbole. I traveled really widely to look at loads of different farms. And I went to a very big estate in Norfolk in east of the UK. And it's very flat, huge fields without many hedges or trees. And the soil there has to be sieved because the supermarkets, which buy the carrots, onions and so on that are grown in it, demands, well, they demand perfect vegetables, but also their processes are set up. So their packing processes demand a particular size so that they can be packaged. And I could stick my hand into the soil all the way up to my elbow and pull up basically dust, which then just blew away as I opened my hand. And I stood in crevices that had been created when they had very heavy rain because it just basically created a river in the middle of the field because there was no organic matter to hold it. That We've got a very forgiving climate, much more forgiving than where you are. We've got seasons and rain and we've got sometimes quite heavy soils. But even down the road in France, Italy, Spain... There are huge swathes of desertified land, land where you can't grow anything anymore because the soil has got nothing left to give in it. Mm. So this is a global problem and it's going to have a global consequence to it. We're also seeing depleted biodiversity, right? Yeah. And most of that is an unintended consequence of using things like chemical pesticides, but also habitat loss from farming. I think... One of the things that when you're in the city, you're sort of completely oblivious to how and why we're connected to biodiversity. It's sort of seen as a sort of fluffy thing that you have, which is nice to look at, as opposed to being completely essential to how we breathe, whether we breathe clean air, whether our water is clean, our beaches are clean. Or it's all interlinked. I think this is the thing that is so fascinating about learning about farming, particularly organic farming, which we do, is that everything is interlinked. And so I was with a woman who's wilding her estate the other day, and she's a city woman who's bought this big estate, and she doesn't really know much about the natural world or biodiversity. And she said, I don't really understand birds. I don't really understand the sort of purpose of birds. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, why would wow. you? Why would you? Like, you know, they just fly around <laughs> <laughs> they sing a bit. It's nice to hear the dawn chorus. And unless you know that there are quite a large number of seeds that will only germinate once they've passed through a bird's internal gut system, which is a mind-blowing thing, really, or you understand mm. how many, for example, in the UK, oaks are planted by jays every year. Tens of thousands of them. I didn't know that. And you understand that most saplings, almost all wild saplings will be planted by birds. And so the idea that you 
can take out a sort of element of that biodiversity and not have an accidental ripple effect on everything else is a sort of misunderstanding of how the system works. When you said it's considered fluffy or it's just one of those words that actually might not mean very much to people. It becomes an item in a report. Biodiversity loss. Okay, check out it bears what. It doesn't actually make you feel connected, does it? No, it's a very anaesthetic word, biodiversity. Uh, and it's also so overused in a way that no one really knows what it means. And I think if we just called it natural systems or the natural world, we would know. And I think the other kind of huge problem in this is that we have come to think of nature as something that we are outside of and observe, as opposed to the fact that we are nature too. We are completely bound up in it. Mm. And what is helpful now is that there's pretty hard science coming out that looks at how our brains respond to the natural world, why we react in the way that we react to it. You know, what spores we're inhaling as we walk through woodland that have a chemical release in our brain, all that kind of stuff. Helpfully, the science is caught up so it doesn't become this kind of hippie fairy thing that people do. There's there's very hard data behind it. That made me think of, um, handily, the next question. But <laughs> <laughs> I've cut that out. No. <laughs> But it is handily the next question. You must have prepared. So in your book, you meet and talk to and learn from a bunch of farmers who work mm. regeneratively, organically, or who are finding their ways to doing things differently. One of them is a regenerative farmer, Ollie. He's a tenant farmer. He's renting his land off the council. And he talks about how when he started to do the work the way he does it, mm. some of his neighbors who farm the conventional way mocked him. And I wrote it down here it was like they thought it was soft and they said, what do you want to cuddle nature? And then you wrote, but it's not about cuddling, it's about respecting and understanding. And the line was, it's about living with it in your eye, seeing yourself inside the circle rather than outside it. I love that. Those are his exact words. I've got him on tape saying exactly that. And I tried as much as possible to weave the farmer's expressions into the text. And... I think when you're farming, farming anything, food or fibre, you are either in a battle with nature, which is what we have been, I think, for 60 years, where you're trying to tame it, control it, eradicate it, or you're trying to understand it and use the helpful parts of it to help you. And to do that, you kind of have to see yourself in this circle as well. Like, for example, there's another farmer in the book I talk about who plants wildflower strips down every fourth tram line with a little, it's like a little sort of raised hump next to it, which is called a beetle bank to allow habitats for beetles who are predatory insects. And he has mapped out on his farm how far a beetle will go from its home. So he knows that every square inch of his farm is covered by a beetle because he's planted their habitat next to it. And he's also been able to measure that the crops nearest those wildflower strips are 25% higher yielding than right in the middle where the predatory insects aren't really able to eat off aphids, help control the pests that might damage his crops. So that is exactly that, living with nature in your eye, constantly looking around thinking, that's interesting, that's happening, that's interesting, that's happening. How can I join those together and mm. they all do that it's quite lovely actually listening to you talk there I was thinking that it's collaborative and that's another one of those sustainability buzzwords that might mean nothing but that's a lovely idea that you might collaborate with nature to get the outcome that you want rather than drenching it with herbicides and pesticides and hoping that then you will have a better crop, which we know doesn't work. But that's actually saying, hang on a minute, nature already does this. If yeah. we put a cover crop in and a beetle, maybe the beetle will eat the pest. I do like the idea that it's collaborative. What do you reckon? I think that's a really good word that we don't talk about in terms of our relationship with nature. And I don't think I've heard it used. I was at an all-day event yesterday for something called Agricology, and we talked all about this. And I don't think that we talked about collaborating with other people, but we did not talk about collaborating with nature. And I love that because it gives nature an equal power to us. And of course, UK has been in a farmed landscape for hundreds of years. And so there are many birds, animals, and insects 
but thrive mm. in farmed landscapes as opposed to wild landscapes where no people go. Mm. Okay, let's talk about you. So you mentioned before that you were a barrister, you lived in London. You're not a stranger to this living on the land farming background, but your parents weren't farmers, but your grandparents were. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So my grandfather got started farming five years after wartime rationing ended. Rooted begins with memories of being in your grandparents' farmhouse. And I can just remember you writing about your grandmother growing daffodils, presumably because they were beautiful, right? And then lying down in them and feeling <laughs> like you were drowning in a sea of a beautiful golden sea. I can't remember the words. Yeah. But then she taught you jam making. She taught you to pluck a pheasant. She <laughs> I say that because it's not all gorgeous, right? So the, the sea of the flowers, but also the practicality of pull that feather out of that dead bird. I think that is what I wanted to get across so much. And the idea that nature is cuddly. <laughs> when, if you have a, these experiences within the natural world are brutal, harsh, you are aware of its force and how unforgiving it is. And you res have to respect it in the way that mm -hmm. surfers respect the sea, in the way that skiers respect the mountain. You There has to be a duality about your response to it. And so, yeah, back in the when I was young, I was very aware of how brutal farming was. It involved death and exposure to death and exposure to pain and exposure to a circle of life, which I think we've lost touch with. The city yeah. has allowed us to lose touch with. And that has meant that we are removed from the sort of more unpleasant aspects of life and death, but you can't remove, <laughs> you can't remove those two parts with which we will all have an experience, obviously. And so we're very ill-equipped, I think, to deal with them. But yes, my grandmother was a farmer's wife and entirely unsympathetic to any kind of pain. And if you cut yourself, she'd just go, well, it means you're alive. <laughs> uh, Sarah, can I tell you a funny thing? <laughs> I grew up in the country and I used to ride horses. And when I was a kid, I fell off the horse and whoever it was, it wasn't my mum, it was whoever was standing around there, was like, I screamed and cried because it kicked me in the face. I've still got a cracked oh my scar God. across my face. Yeah. And they gave me a bucket and said, bleed in that, love. Because that's actually, <laughs> it was a lot. It was, you know, don't make a fuss. You're not going to die. Do you need the hospital? No. Okay, fine. <laughs> that's it. There exactly. is a kind of short shrift with making a fuss, right? There is. And that's deeply unhealthy in some ways, but also <laughs> makes you very resilient. And that, that is a quality which allows you to achieve and succeed and maybe enjoy a lot of life. So I, yeah, I mean, it wasn't all good, was it? The stiff upper lip that, side, but... Not necessarily. But that thing about um, being able to pluck a pheasant and what you just said about the way we are so protected from the realities of the fact that we're all going to be born and we're all going to die. Mm. And that goes for animals too. And if you're going to eat meat, you may need to kill it. But we, of course, don't have to do that when we go to the supermarket. If you are a meat eater, you can buy your chicken breast looking like Not nothing like a chicken. natural at all in a polystyrene tray. <laughs> No. I mean, you could be forgiven for not understanding where it came from at all. And I did mm. want to talk about that because there are really strong parallels with the fashion industry there that we're just very disconnected with the process behind things. The final product seems to be completely disconnected and disassociated with its origins often, right? Yeah. You write about that in the, in the book about the supermarket and the sterilized, shrink-wrapped food that so many of us are familiar with. Yeah. Well, there is no accountability. We don't have to think to us. We are absolved from responsibility of our choices because their route to us, whether that's our car or computer or whatever, we, we don't know their provenance most of the time. And it's not just meat, of course, because I've been in on many, many farms. The farm that I was just describing was growing solely vegetables and killed millions of beings a year in its use of pesticides and worms and birds and all the other 
smaller mm-hmm. life, which is no less valuable because of the way that it was farmed. So there is no way you can consume anything without there being a price to that. Thank you for saying that. I think we often forget that it's not that easy to say, I don't want to kill anything, is it? I should say that there is death on an organic farm too. It's not conventional only. On our farm, for example, we can't spray to get rid of our weeds, so we plough. And in the process of ploughing, we will slaughter hundreds of thousands of worms and other insects. We might disrupt birds' nests. There will be, there is death in every link of the farming chain. And I mean that with fibre as well as food, of course. Sarah, when you say we'll slaughter the worms by <laughs> ploughing, I reckon people might listen to that and go, what do you mean, Debbie? You know, we're, we're not used to thinking of things in that way. Yeah. But also, I hadn't understood until I read your book that there is controversy around ploughing. Ploughing around mm. disturbing the soil, that's part of the rewilding movement, like leave everything in as it is, don't destroy it, have the lightest touch possible. But if we did that, we wouldn't be able to grow anything at all, would we? Yes, <laughs> is the short answer to that. And don't get me wrong, I think that there needs to be a balance. There's no one size fits all solution to this. And I think wilding is very important. Re-allowing, well, it's not, you're not redoing anything because it's, you're interfering in some way. So you're creating a new Mm. landscape in a way. But the ability to create spaces where wild creatures can live is important. I'm not entirely convinced that we're able to do it properly on a very small island, but there are other landscapes in the world which are very successful at creating that kind of genuine ecosystem where you have wild predators. Mm. But yes, there are two kind of overlapping arguments in this. Three, actually. One is that if you are not going to get your food from a farmed landscape, which is in the majority where we get our food from at the moment, you have to make it in a factory. And what we know for sure now, thanks to quite a lot of research that has been done about our obesity epidemic, our diabetes epidemic, is that it is highly processed, ultra-processed foods that are making us ill. We are living longer, but we are living sicker. And Mm. there is no easy way. It's not like saying, "I, I broke my leg and therefore this is how you fix it. It's about how our bodies are responding to this highly processed food that so many of us are eating and are unable to respond to it. And there's there's brilliant, like Henry Dimbleby's Ravenous has just come out. That's very good. There's a book that's about to come out called Ultra Processed People. That's really good. By, oh no, title. <laughs> by a doctor who talks about exactly what happens at a cellular level when we eat very highly processed food. And of course, we alternatively have evolved to consume plants and animal products alongside. So our bodies are very good at at eating them. I'm not saying that the world needs 66 billion chickens a year or that we should eat our meat protein as basically a vehicle for source. You know, it is a highly complex and nutritious product, but we should treat it with the respect it deserves. And that means eating far less of it. I want to ask if you feel like you're a farmer. Do you feel like you're a farmer these days? Or do you feel oh, like you're an author or an ex-barrister? I, I don't know what I It's I been am. five I, years, right? Yeah. Well, in terms of last being in a courtroom, it was eight years ago. So I have a lovely friend who farms in Wiltshire and he is taken over from his dad and he's got a very, very productive grade one, big arable farm. And I talked to him a lot for this book. And he's been doing it for eight years. And he said, I don't really feel like a farmer. I'm like, Chris, for God's sake, you've been doing it for eight years. And I think he thought that he wasn't because he was being really experimental. He was getting into all sorts of different regenerative methods. And I think he thought, well, I'm not really like, I, I'm not re- like a real farmer in a check shirt, shouting at people to get off my land and just spraying shit everywhere. And I don't know how long you have to do it for before you really feel completely uh, at ease with it. I expect for me, it will probably be about 20 years (laughs) before I feel like I've got authority. I think I probably would say I'm a writer first. 
but I am still managing the farm and deciding what we grow in it and what we're doing with it. And I was talking about it all day yesterday. You know, I realize it's going to be test and trial all the way there, but it's exciting. It feels really exciting in farming at the moment. It feels like for the first time since the Second World War, they get to be the heroes again. And that is a good feeling. Mm. One of the things that really struck me and that moved me in the book was how much insight you gave us into how farmers feel. Mm. Farmers from all different directions, if you like, who come at this from all different ways. Talking about your family, Mm. talking about your grandfather and Charlie, your uncle. I felt like I hadn't understood, I hadn't gotten in the head of a farmer until I read your book. In Australia, we often hear about how brutal and difficult it is on the land and we know it is and everybody knows some people who work in farming and there's high rates of suicide, there's terrible drought, it's brutal and difficult and many, many farmers move off the land. Mm. But reading your book, I I felt like I got it in a new way. I wanted to talk about that because what did you learn from the struggles and inner psyche of some of the farmers you talk to about how they look at what they do? It was psychologically fascinating and troubling, I guess, because it's an identity job. It's not what you, how you earn your money, it's who you are. And that that is why the attacks on it are so personal. Yeah. Because if you're telling a farmer that they not only have been doing it wrong for 40, 50 years, but that they have caused great harm in the process, that doesn't just attack their work, it attacks them. And we need to remember all the stuff about the framework in which those decisions were made and encouraged and paid for and pushed upon by other people. So I think the things I was so struck by was one, how the kind of reconciliations and compromises that farmers made mentally to be able to do really, really difficult jobs that they didn't want to do. Like no farmer I have ever met feels neutral about driving their animals to the slaughterhouse. Not one of them. So it's not like they go, yes, it's just a job I have to do. They hate it. (laughs) But they know that it's part of this process. And something like that was a really interesting one. And also, I think the regenerative farmers, the organic farmers that I saw, the way that they felt about the world that they were connected to, there was a humility to it that I don't think many of us kind of foster really in our own lives, which was that they know that they would never see that tree grow to its completion. They would know that they would never see that hedge grow to its completion. They were doing it as part of this tiny link in this really long chain. And I thought that Mm. this idea of kind of legacy can be a very heavy one to carry and is a great burden to many farmers. But when they were looking at it, not in terms of how to keep their land, but in terms of how to improve the natural systems in their land, it was all about the future for everybody. And that made them much more kind of peaceful people, actually. They wore their responsibility in a way which wasn't burdensome. And I think that that's a great kind of gift. But I don't think I met, and I, I've i stood in industrial-sized chicken houses and I've gone to pig units and I've gone and looked under the bonnet of the really kind of unpleasant parts of large-scale industrial farming. And it, it's very, very difficult to find a farmer I didn't like on a personal level. I liked all of them. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And and that really comes across. I want I want to read this sentence because I underlined it and I think it's just so, I just don't think people have considered this. You write, my grandfather Peter was a hero who fed a starving nation. Now his son Charlie, my uncle, is considered a villain, blamed for ecological catastrophe with a legacy no one wants. It must be so hard to be told you used to be the one we looked up to, thank you for feeding the nation, to being you're trashing the planet, you're not doing right by nature. It's, yeah, I'm just trying to put my mind, my heart inside Charlie and people like him. It just must be galling. How are you supposed to deal with it? It is galling. And I think if I, if I look at the language of my old world, the law, 
When you're convicting mm. someone of a crime, of a really serious crime like murder, you have to have what we call a mens rea. Uh, the mental element of the crime has to be intent. You can't have done it recklessly or carelessly. You have to have wanted it to happen in order to be guilty of murder. There are other crimes where you can be guilty if you're careless or reckless. You have to have sort of foreseen the possibility that that might be the outcome. And I think there are some farmers that do fit into that. There are some farmers that in their gut, when they saw the butterflies falling in sheets, which is what someone described to me, you know, when they used to spray by helicopter and you would see a sheet of insects fall down, that it didn't feel good. It didn't feel good in their gut when a hare would run beneath a sprayer and then start licking its paws. Or they would find nests of dead birds. So there is a category of farmers that knew in their gut that what they were doing was wrong. And they're very brave because they usually acted on that. But we have convicted a large segment of the industry for something that they were being told to do, paid to do, encouraged to do. And I think mm. the galling bit is that we in the city, which in the UK anyway, is 84% of the population, have carried on consuming what they make, <laughs> buying the product for which they get sometimes less than 1% of the value once it ends up on the shelf. And that is the galling bit, because you think if you don't like the way we do it, don't consume and buy what we make. I think that is the hypocrisy. And of course, you know, all of us flying around the world on our nice holidays, well, they can't afford to do it. Or it is, it sticks in the craw, I think, for them. Yeah, there's a bit in your book where someone says that, you don't come telling me how to be eco-friendly and green when you're flying off to wherever it is for your holidays when I can't do that. And and there's there's hypocrisy in there, isn't there? Of course. And look, we're all hypoc that's the human condition. We are all flawed and little hypocrites in a million different ways, some of which we know about, some of which we don't know about yet. And it is this idea of the purity pyramid, where there are some people who get to sit in the top and cast judgment on everyone else, doesn't move anyone in the right direction. I think the only way of moving this forward is kind of empathy and compassion and saying, we know, we understand why that happened, but that's then. Let's, let's look at how we're going to move forward with it. Sarah, you've been such a good interview. Thank you very much. No, I've loved it. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press.